Deborah Craddock, a podcast where we sit down with everyday Americans and hear their extraordinary stories. I'm your host, Deborah Drucker. Come along with me as we discuss those things that we were always told not to talk about politics, religion, and more. I promise you'll be inspired and have your mind opened by the end of this episode. Well, it was kind of cold that night. She stood alone on the balcony Yeah, she could hear the cars roll by Out on 441 Like waves crashing on the beach Hello everyone and welcome to Deborah Craddock. Today on Deborah Craddock, we are going to hear the story of Ray Bennett. Ray is an advocate mostly focusing on reparations for descendants of slaves. Ray is a descendant of slave owners. She has worked with the American Red Cross, was part of the teaching faculty at Daniel Payne College in Alabama, worked for federal programs to support teachers and administration at Allen University in South Carolina, and helped to create the Speaking Truth program. Let's find out how this multi-generational Southern woman uncovered her history and became a crusader for social justice. How are you doing today, Ray? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Thank you for making the uh, trip out to see us here in California. So you divide your time between Arizona and California now, but where are you originally from? Uh, I was born in North Carolina, and uh, I've lived throughout the South primarily, except for extended periods overseas. But I started out in North Carolina. My mother's from North Carolina. My father's from South Carolina. And then I've lived in Alabama, East Tennessee, Louisiana. I think that's about it. So mostly stayed in the South. Yes. Uh I left to travel, and when I did, I traveled, you know, was gone for extensive periods of time. So, and what were you doing when you were traveling? Well, the first time I traveled, I think when I was during my first marriage, my husband and I, I convinced him that we needed to uh, liquidate and go live in Europe for as long as we could. And he surprisingly bought it. <laughs> so the next thing I knew, we had sold everything, rented our house, and we went and lived in Europe for about a year until we came back home. So when you were... Um, growing up in the South, who did you grow up with? I moved around a lot. My father, after the war, like many men, had had problems finding their way again because for World War II, people went to war for two or three years. They didn't go for 13-month tours like they do now. So he was gone, uh, left his you know career and his interests and his family behind. And so when he came back, he... You know, he, had, he tried many, many different things. But finally, he settled into a uh, profession where he had to move. So we moved around a lot. And, what branch uh, of the military? Uh, he was in the uh, Army. He was in artillery. I mean, he, you know, he enlisted right away. But most men, a lot of men did that. And so when he left, he left. He was gone for at least two or three years. So you grew up with siblings? Yes, I had one, one sister. She's five years younger than me. And was that a happy home life? Oh, yeah. I don't, but I mean, happy. There was, I mean, there was the usual tangle of, you know, conflicting ideas about what the children should be doing as opposed to the adults. But other than that, I think it was pretty typical. And uh, maybe my parents didn't have the advantage of having, you know, 13 years of of therapy before they, you know, before they got married and settled down and lived like we do now. And uh, so I think they did a very, very good job. And and I can say on reflection that I think that my parents were very different, but from my father, I got leadership skills. And from my mother, I got ambition. She was a very ambitious woman. And were you raised like a proper southern girl with a presentation mm-hmm. ball and all these southern traditions? 
Not so much. My sister was raised more like that. When you move around a lot, you're preoccupied with your social status when you go to a new place. And that's what I was preoccupied with because I had to, you have to, you have to start over. And we moved every, maybe every three or four years. They tried to stay in one place long enough for us to finish certain educational goals. But, but when we moved, I had to start all over again. It was kind of difficult. So I think I spent my energy and they spent their energy helping me through that process. When by the time my sister came along, everything was much more stable. We weren't moving so much. And she had more of a, what do you call it? typical Southern upbringing than I did. You know, she had a debut and all that kind of thing, and I didn't, I didn't have that. I wasn't interested in it anyway, but it was part of her community, and so, of course, they participated. So did your parents stay together your whole life? Yes, yes. My That's father wonderful. was, he was gone during the war, but after that, he was home every night, nice. unless he was traveling for business. And he was a kind man. Yeah, he was kind, and he uh, had really, really good leadership skills, so he had a lot of friends and so I was really amazed at all these people because I thought, he's just my father, you know, how, you know, when he, here he has all these friends that are showing up to pay respects, you know, so made me appreciate him more. I remember know? that at my dad's funeral, I was like, some of these people that came and showed up, I was really surprised. I thought, wow, they still remembered him. They still cared yeah. enough to pay their respects or, oh, that person, that's one he described in a story once and I never met that person and they yes. really do exist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's interesting. Um, so was that a happy upbringing for you? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, other than the, you know, the, the teenage years, they were pretty rough. I was very rebellious. And uh, my sister wasn't as rebellious as I was. She was, she was a little bit more well-behaved, I believe. And not that she was, you know, she wasn't compliant, but she was, I was much less compliant than she was. What's uh, the most rebellious thing you ever did? Oh, I don't know. Just you, you didn't have much choice about, you know, what, how, what you rebelled on back then. Uh, but, you know, I drank too much in high school and <laughs> vomited all over my prom dress and, you know, stuff like that and smoked cigarettes and, you know. Um, all, all the good stuff the kids get yeah, up to, right? It wasn't anything, um, it wasn't anything you know, uh, scandalous or anything like that. Just teen, teen Just rebellion. teenage stuff. You know? Yeah, and when you were growing up in that household, when your father was around, were there any politics discussed, or did politics play a role at all in the home? Not really, even though I lived with them during some pretty tumultuous times in this country, or was in contact with them during my adult years from the 60s on. But I don't, we talked some, but not, that wasn't a big influence on me. There were Republicans, I believe, but they were moderate. And I think on both sides of their family, they were Republican. And growing up, did you feel general politics in your home or just the general political environment played a role in how you arrived at your perspective Mm -hmm. on politics? Mm. Well, my politics are very different than my family. Okay. and I think I just sort of kept, I, did, I don't think, I was not engaged politically when I was in high school, those early years. It was when I went off to college that that occurred. Was there religion in your home? I'm not trying to be trivial, but maybe a little slapdash, you know. Uh, they were, my parents were religious and um, they went to church. But as we got older, it became, they dropped us off at church and picked us up later. And I'm sure some of that was because so they could have some time to themselves for that hour and a half or two hours that we were gone. Because going to church in the South was a big deal back then. That's when you put all your finery on. And um, I mean, you put, I mean, you wore heels, hose, the whole bit to church because it was the most prominent social environment that people could meet other people. And um, so they would take us to dress us up. We would, you know, go to, go to Sunday school and church, and then they'd pick us up afterwards. And did you enjoy it? Of course not. <laughs> you didn't even like that part? No, huh? I didn't like that part. I mean, it was, you know, so well, none, sure of the, none of the cute boys went to the First Baptist Church of Gadsden, Alabama. Okay, so Baptist, that's pretty... Yes, pretty bad, yeah. That's pretty yeah. serious 
Yeah, that's pretty serious. That's devout. But they're not, but they were not, they were not evangelistic or, or anything like that. They were just mom and pop religious, just, you know, and, uh, but they believed, I think that, I think my mother was probably a little bit more so than my father, because I think she was the one that, I think she made him get baptized when he was an adult, which would indicate that he was not a believer before. Okay. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, but we didn't have, you know, we didn't have. I think we said grace at dinner, maybe, but we didn't read the Bible around you know, as a family and things like that. We just sort of um, just went to church on Sunday. I think that was the main thing. And when I, we were young, we went to vacation Bible school and all that kind of stuff. So do you think that religion played any part in shaping who you are today? Well, I'm an atheist, so I guess it did shape me. <laughs> it shaped you to go the other yeah, way? it shaped me to go the other way. And that was my next question. Do you carry faith with you today? You mean the, the original faith that I had? Any I, faith at all. Any faith at all. Yeah, sure. In myself, in nature, in human beings. Um, not much faith in other things, aspects. But, uh, yeah, I'm t- I, I tend to. But I do not believe in a divine, any kind of divinity or a divine spirit or a divine beings or anything like that. And how did you arrive at your political perspective today? Well, I think it started when I was in college. You can imagine the quality of the education one would get living in Gadsden, Alabama in the 50s. So I was unexposed to the broader picture of human civilization and experiences. So when I went off to college, I went to a a women's college in Marion, Alabama, which is 30 miles from Selma. And I just fell in love with learning because it was the first time I had a chance to learn because there were, it was, it was a women's college. There were no men around. There was, there was no distraction of, you know, competing for boyfriends or trying to pick out one or all that kind of nonsense. I had full reign to just learn. The faculty was mainly females, and they were all educated in the North because the women in the South there couldn't go to the good schools, so they were educated in the North, and then they couldn't get jobs because they were women, so they all came down in, in the Southern or all over the country, but they, a lot of them came to the South and worked at these real small religious-affiliated colleges that I went to. Yeah, I was going to ask, it must have been a small college considering mm-hmm. women were not really encouraged to be going to college. Yes, and it was, uh, you know, they would be maybe in a family where there were all females like ours, and they wanted to educate their females, so they would send them to schools like this. But, it, I mean, I could have gone to the University of Alabama, but my parents, they wouldn't let me. Let's start, because I did mention that you are a descendant of slave owners. So I want to get to that, and at which point in your life you discovered that. Did you know that from a young age? No. no, Nobody okay. in my family ever mentioned it. Okay. Not one peep. Not so, one reference, not anything. I found the first reference I ever found was about maybe 15 years ago in some oral history that was in some kind of crazy, you know, web, web thing. I don't even know where the, where the hell it came from, but, but it indicated that there were slaves around. And so I just sort of tucked it away in my head. And then what really, I think, spurred me on was meeting the, the uh, gentleman that helped, that worked with me to set up Speaking Truth. And see, I retired about 15 years ago. And up until that time, I didn't have time. I was working my ass off trying to establish myself in, in a profession. And I didn't have the time to to even investigate that kind of thing. But I, it was always in the back of my mind. I always, you know, would think about it occasionally. And But as a little girl, you had no idea no, there was any no affiliation no. to slave oh, ownership. Oh, no, no, no. It was a completely segregated society. I grew up in the Jim Crow South. So it was totally segregated in the formal sense. You have African-American people and families that would live in the cities in white neighborhoods, but they were primarily people that were hired as helpers for the family, and they gave them a place to live on the property. We had a family right, that lived right behind us in Alabama that was like that. What year were you born? 1942. So in your lifetime, you saw civil rights, you saw women's rights, you've, you've seen a lot. 
I want to go back to what activated you because I see that at a relatively young age, you were working with the American Red Cross in South Korea. Mm-hmm. It was an altruistic, if you will, endeavor because we were over there to support American troops that were stationed in Korea. Back then, there were about 50,000 of them. And so we Was wor- that during the Korean War then? No, 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 after the Korean oh. War. I didn't go over there until after, till after I finished college. So I guess it was 1965, 66, something like that. And I stayed over there for two years. And, um, but all I did was drink and party and have a good time. <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> I'm interested which is, in seeing soul. Which is, which is, which is, the, um, uh, which is part of, sort of the hallmark of my life until I got to be about 45 when I realized one, day, one of these days I want to retire. So I had to, I had to settle down into a, to a well-paying job so I could retire at some time. Mm-hmm. Later, you were part of the teaching faculty at Daniel Payne College mm-hmm. in Alabama, which yes. I think is no longer there. No, it is no longer there. Yeah, it was what happened to that college? When I was there, um, it was it was a church affiliate school. Uh, was AME school, African Methodist Episcopal Church, and so the church had a heavy hand in the in the school itself. It was very poor. Uh, at one time in their history, students paid their tuition with wood and potatoes and things like that. And it was a really, really small school. And um, in fact, I was involved before I, right before I left there in um, a general, general strike against the administration and the church for their corruption, their corrupt practices. And um, after that, I don't think, and we, we had a class action suit against them and uh, and I don't think that after that they were able to really recover financially. It was it was very disastrous in terms of publicity, and I think it depleted their resources, and, their, and it certainly it depleted their stature. Was it exclusively an African American yes. American college? Yes. Okay. And then you were involved and responsible for a federal program to support teaching and administration at Allen University mm-hmm. in South Carolina, right. which was also a yeah, it's uh, an yeah, African, yeah. An African HCBUs, they call them. And how long were you there? Uh, I was at, oh my gosh, let's see. I can't, it's been so long ago. I would say between the two places, I probably spent about 15 years working in those two environments. And I found that you said that was the most transformational experience. Yes, working a work at experience. Those, yeah. Yes, well, you can imagine. Yeah. It was a, a white a whole, southern girl. White who was southern girl. Grew up I was, in segregation. There were not, no, and there were no. Uh, this was not uh, during the civil rights movement. There were a lot of people that came down from the north to help um, and to you know lend lend credence to the movement, uh, but they didn't come to places like where I was because they were just they were not notable enough and they were poor and uh, they and they did and there was no political activism present on the campus that they could hook into and so unlike of. the Howard University yeah, or, yeah, or like Miles College Miles College in Birmingham was a big big draw for white liberals to come down and they you know came down and worked uh, and I guess in some ways um, you know I didn't really believe in that because the schools belong to to the the people of the commu- of their own community. And while white people were able to come down and help in specific ways, um, the institutions were belonged to and were a product of the African American experience. So, but at least it brought light. Well, to exactly. But I mean, I would never have strived for a position of leadership at that college. It, to me, it would be inappropriate. I was because you feel belonged to someone else. Yes, yes. I mean, someone of yeah. color and t- someone who. Uh, Someone who is a part of the culture is the—they're the people who should be making the decisions about the college's direction, not someone like me. I wasn't even hardly wet behind the ears. So, what was it that inspired you to, or compelled you to work in the African American community? Well, when I was in college, I fell in love with learning. You know, I leaned towards the underdog. So, and when I was at Judson. That was right in, um, right at the beginning, right during the hot, some of the hot days of the civil rights movement. All the stuff in Selma was starting to happen in the little town that the college, where I, where it was located, we had many many uh, demonstrations, violence, and all that. And then all that violence that happened in Selma and around me just sort of opened my eyes to the fact of what 
it was really lying. So uh, that made that turn that shifted my brain to one that was kind of, you know, having a good time learning about Western civilization and art history and music history and all this kind of stuff. Then and uh, <laughs> then it, it shifted because I really became interested in and more sociological and political aspects of being and of living in the United States. And that was the one that was the most real to me. So I think that sort of opened my eyes and it completed my, it gave me something to be, something substantive to be rebellious about instead of just rules. And did you feel any progress through those years? Did you see that the work made a difference? Yeah, those were the years. A lot of that has a lot of the progress that was made during those years has since dissipated, as you can tell Sliding by the back. rancor of our national discourse on race. But that turned me around. That turned me around, absolutely. So you go from one college in Alabama, then you're at this university in South Carolina, and then mm-hmm. what happens? Well, I got fired from the institution, the second institution, because I was white. And, and how did you feel about that? I thought it was... I don't know. It was, in some ways, it was, it was delayed justice, you know, in a way. And I wasn't offended, you know. I didn't, I didn't get stand up and give them lectures about their bias, you know. I just, I thanked them for the opportunity of working there, and I took my little puny severance pay, and I left, and uh, I just moved on to something else, you know. So it didn't dampen any, oh, no, any no, fire no. Oh, in you God, to fight no. for the rights. No, I just think that. The man who became president then, that was what he wanted to do, and it's his college, and it's, it's their game. So once you're fired from this, this college, where do you end up going? I was in South Carolina then, so I ended up going to work for a mainstream institution, what I call mainstream institutions. They were white-supported, you know, white-dominant, state-supported uh, community college. How many years of your life did you spend in the South? 45. And then you said, that's it, I want to move to Arizona. Mm-hmm. Why Arizona? Got a job there. Okay. A really good job. Because I think that was about that time that I decided I needed to get serious. And were gonna... you disillusioned at all with all the efforts going on that you were, or the progress or lack thereof that you were making in the South? Or Yeah, yeah, I was, because it was... Um, I just got tired of it, you know. It was every day. You couldn't go through a day without hearing the N-word at least five, six, seven times. Just popping out of people's mouths like it was nothing, like it was good morning. That's a, that's a surface thing, but below that, it was just listening to people plot and actually intentionally try to deter African Americans. That was our majority minority population there. And, uh, and plus all the homophobia. I got tired of that, too. And I, did you interface with any homosexuals in your lifetime growing up? Oh, yeah. Yeah. My favorite cousin was gay. And, um, and then also, I always laugh about, and I said, because I didn't realize it at the time, but the women's college that I went to, I am totally convinced now that I look back on it that, you know, most of the administration were lesbian and many of the faculty were. It was not obvious and they weren't out like people are now, but, but it certainly, they had their own perspective that they were teaching from and, and I greatly benefited from that. When I became in more close contact with, with gay people, it didn't seem weird to me. It was just like, it was just like, you know, these are just, it's just another group of people. And your cousin was a Southern. Yes. Oh, man. Man. Southern man. And was he able to be who he really was in the South with your family? Yes, and he paid a great price for that. He did. Yes. And did your family accept him? No, of course not. Okay. So that might be a point where you see homophobia in your family. Yeah, in your family. Oh, yeah. Well, back then, I mean, it was my cousin was, uh, we we were close in age, and we just got along like a house on fire. Of course, and and I can remember uh, going to visit him, and we would, you know, dress up in his mother's, you know, cocktail and evening dresses and all that kind of stuff. And and he was just a wonderful, fun person to be around, and I loved him, I adored him, you know. And then as he grew up, he was bullied and 
during high school and everything because I think he was something like the drum major. So did he ever get like to that. live his true self in his yes, lifetime? Yes, he did. He left, but he was not ever able to pull his life together, oh. unfortunately. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that he was just he was rejected by the people and that he his his family of origin. And, and so uh, they just denied him, and then yeah, and as long as he oh, and he would he would do, and he would that compelled him to do outrageous things. Of course, he was outrageous. And how did he pass? He died about maybe three or four years ago. He was he lived pretty um, pretty hard and fast. Yeah. So when he when he got sick, he finally got sick. He got cancer, and he had to go, he didn't have any place else to go except. Go back to Inman, South Carolina, if you can imagine. So he had back to the family. That back to the family. Back to his him. mother. His mother had rejected him, and his beloved grandmother was dead. But anyway, he went back there and tried. And I always, I just, I said, I cannot believe you were back here, after all the years and all the things that you've done. That you're back here. But he, he lived there and he died there. And he was, um, he lived in our cousin. We had a cousin who had some property there, and she had a. Um, a garage apartment in the back. And so Ron lived up there in very precarious circumstances. He was totally living on the state. So anyway, he just died one day. He was watching television, and he just died. His friends called me and said they found him sitting up in front of the television. Oh, I'm so sorry. So, so sad. A but, lifetime yeah. not loved by your family. Yeah. That's just a tragedy. I think the longer that I was around him and saw him function, try to function as an adult, I realized uh, the effect that that had on him because it, it essentially disempowered him as a human being. Back then, that was, and it was a really, really small town that he lived in. It was just, uh, it just wasn't done. It was the old days. I mean, it was, it was the like, old days. They didn't understand. Yeah, when they he didn't... came out to my, my grandmother, who was I'm not family. judging. I'm, you know, it was but, a generational yeah. thing. You yeah, know? it was. Yeah, she told him when he came out to her, she said, she looked at him and she said, she said, hmm. She said, this will be our little secret. Of course. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, she might have been so that somewhat meant, protecting him <laughs> in the environment he well, was yes, in in the day. You exactly. Know? Yeah. And I think, that's, I think that's true to a great extent. You know, I had uh, one of my therapists pointed that out to me one time when I was complaining about my, some of my mother's rules and regulations and expectations. And she said, did you ever stop to think that she was concerned about your ability to be successful and to be safe in this world if you continue, continue to behave like that? Because you've always been an activist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or well, you've gone rebellious. against the, yeah, rebellious. Yeah, rebellious yeah. And so at which point did you discover that your great-great-grandfather was, was a slave owner? He had 15 slaves. Yes. I'm sorry. I should not say slaves. They are called enslaved people yes, today. Enslaved people, yeah. So I, I like to so. get, I like to be woke. No, I do too. I, I knew for a long time, but when I, when I, uh, ran into these two guys that and one of them had was a was a descendant and then and we decided to start this organization i knew i had to verify it you have to get your own stuff clear before you go out to the public so i i had a, a search done by a genealogy company and they they found the details for me i asked them to verify if there were slaves and um enslaved peoples and they they did. They found him, and they found, uh, and it's right in the census records. They sent me the sheet of paper that was from the census because they did when the census for eighteen fifty and eighteen sixty they included slaves. So uh, they photographed and were photocopied the page, and there's the name of my grandfather, great great grandfather, and then the names of the slaves that he owned, fifteen of them, and then on the same page there was. I think it was his son, and he owned probably the same amount. Wow, so they must have been wealthy people. There were a lot of slaves in the South. It was a third of the population was, was enslaved. enslaved. So, When you said you met a descendant, mm -hmm. he was also a descendant, yes. a descendant of slave owners or a descendant mm -hmm. of slaves? Uh, slave owners. Okay, and he verified that, and you verified mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. and that was the catalyst to create mm -hmm. Speaking Truth. Speakingtruth.org. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and so you find this out, and what, what 
what goes through your mind? How, how do you feel? At first, I felt really ashamed and very uh, angry. Then uh, most people that are in my position, they go through a, they go through a process where they feel that, and then after a while, and you cry and sob and you know all this, and then the white tears you can't the white tears phase it has to pass because um, all that anger and uh, embarrassment it sort of disempowers you from doing anything because you're just you're still focused on your own feelings, you know so. You, you have to work through that. So I think that eventually people move to a position like myself where they instead feel sorrow, great sorrow, and uh, still feel shame and embarrassment, but feel a great sorrow for what happened. And then I'm sorrow for my family's involvement. And then also, then you start to move about, well, what can I do to, what can I do to bring or to support racial reconciliation in this country? And all the things that go along with that, like reparations. So tell me about the mission, then, of the Speaking Truth program. We have a website, and we invite people to uh, come forth and make a video, a five-minute video, of, their, of how, they, how they found out their family owned, uh, were slave owners, and how, they, how it made them feel, what were their reactions, how did they process that information? And then what are they doing in concrete terms to make amends? And when I say concrete terms, not just feel bad about that. I mean, get out there and do something to promote racial reconciliation in this country. And how do you promote that? By telling the truth. Okay. And have you ever accessed any of the descendants of the slaves that your family owned? No, that's my next step. Okay, so you're still on your journey. Yes. And how big is your community so far in the Speaking Truth program of others sharing their history? We have about 50 videotapes. And they were, and we at first thought that, that we would just be flooded with people that wanted to tell their story and all this kind of stuff. And, and, that, and that wasn't what happened. We had difficulty convincing people to do the videotaping. It's not so easy just to say, yeah, I'll do that. I'll go sit down and have myself videotaped and I'll talk about my, my family's you know, nefarious past. So if you're encouraging people to provide reparations, where are they putting those reparations or where are they donating or what, what is it that they're contributing to? It varies. A lot of them have done, uh, a lot of them have formed organizations like coming to the table, which are large and they're nationwide, and they do reparations, and they're not just they're not just descendants, but they've done a lot. So there um, there are some people that are in those videotapes that you can that have had experience longer than with this and in a more institutional formal way than someone say like me or another person. So is it you're just encouraging we're, people we're, to speak up? Our goal is racial reconciliation. We support reparations, uh, absolutely, 100%, uh, but we are not involved in that. What we're trying to do is to encourage people to become involved in making amends. We call it making amends, but that is maybe a lighter form of reparation. Oh, well, a good example is one woman who was a genealogist, and she found out about her family, and she uh, set up a service where she does uh, research for African-American families for free and then teaches them how to do it themselves so they can trace their ancestry. Wow. And, and I'd imagine a lot of the people that are descendants of slave owners mm -hmm. maybe don't even know that. Like, yeah, you didn't know. know it until you sought it out. Yeah. Right. So there must be a lot of people out there that just have no knowledge of it. Well, we figure because of the number of slaves that were a number of enslaved people, you're good, yeah, thank you for reminding me, correcting me, um, is that they probably number in the millions if you consider how many generations have passed since 1860, 65. But a lot of people don't even know. They just don't have any sense of it. But I tell people all the time, well, they'll ask me, well, do you think my family was involved in this? And I said, well, I said, if your family had substantial amounts of land, then they probably were. Because a lot of people did not have 
you know, this, this was not Tara. This is not Gone with the Wind. Uh, some, some people had only two or three slaves. And did that land get passed down the generations? My great-grandfather gave my great-grandmother some land as a dowry when she married. But it didn't trickle down to you? Mm-mm. No. Mm-hmm. And so growing up in the South with all the Confederate monuments mm-hmm. and statues mm-hmm. and memorials, how do you feel about the taking down of, of these, um, these tributes? Oh, they belong in a museum. They don't belong, as you know, in, in public where homage is implicated. No, absolutely not. Right. I just didn't, I don't know yeah. where they celebrate losers. Like, I, like I, that. I, no, but, well, that's the... But because see, I've never seen a Hitler statue in no, Germany. No, exactly. And exactly. I've never seen swastikas out there for public consumption. You're absolutely so, correct. It's an but interesting thing the, that we the, celebrate. Uh, with the, but see, the Civil War was such a pivotal event in the history of the South. that, And so, therefore, it's highly romanticized. And so that's why they put up all those stupid statues all over the place, because that's the way they were landmarks. You would say, I would tell people in, in, in South Carolina, our office is right in front of the statue of whatever Civil War hero is there. To this day, I cannot really consider myself a, a modern Southerner, but, and one that's you know, pretty familiar with, of course, the spectrum or the trajectory of our history as Southerners. But I still don't understand why they would romanticize violence and but see that's a you know that's one of my one of my conjectures about the south the south is a violent place to begin with in my view it's too many guns it's always been like that when i was growing up in the south i remember a being and i wasn't even close to any african americans but i could sense um a sense impending violence Anything can erupt at any minute. So what inspires your passion for the community of color? It's like I said, I think observing the violence of the civil rights movement and because that exposed, completely exposed, how African Americans were treated in the South. Completely ripped the lid off of that. And uh, so there's no way that you could not watch that and if you had the sensibilities that I had not be affected by it. And I was right there in 30 miles from Selma, Alabama, and, you know, living right through all that. Uh, I was there when Viola Luizzi was, was murdered, along with those two, two young men, two black men. And um, I went from there to working in, in uh, uh, black colleges and universities. And so I had, and that was a natural sympathy. And I did... Peripheral work in the civil rights movement. I did some voter registration and stuff like that. And but I was married then, and my husband. In fact, I'm, I proudly say that I am certain that one of the reasons that my husband divorced me was because of my involvement with all that. So, because <laughs> he was, he was, uh, he was a typical southerner. But and uh, you were too racist. rebellious for him, huh? So well, when was the first time you interfaced with a person of color? Because you were so sheltered as, as like a, in a social environment or an educational mm. institution. Probably when I, well, I'm trying to think. That's a long time ago, Deborah. Um, let me see. <laughs> Probably, um, I'm trying to think when I went off to, well, you know, when I went off to graduate school, I went to Tulane, first of all. And, I mean, they were more, you know, integrated. So I had, but there, I had contact with African Americans, but not, but not up, not close or anything like that. So probably my close, real meaningful contact was when I decided to go to work for for that first uh, black college. So and then I was then I was totally in a minority. I was, there were two white people on the faculty of about maybe fifty, something like that. And did you find any sort of difference in the African community family as opposed to your family or the family structure mm. or the things that ailed them or, you know, well, I mean. Yes, I did, but I think that I was more interested in the people that I, the people that I was around that I was working with. 
Uh, and I became, of course, you know, you can't work with some with people and not become close to them, you know. And uh, so I made, you know, many, 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 many friends there and became involved with their families and things like that. And but I never really noticed big differences, you know. what I'm saying because I was just I think unconscious. I'm, that's my point. I'm you know, I just really it. noticed it. I mean, because uh, but when Black Lives Matters. Uh, appeared on the scene and started that started you know a lot of newfound attention on the black experience in America and it um, and I think that that had a, a lot of influence it, it made me realize the things that it made me I saw the effects of what I had already observed you know because they so were so did you see that as progress mm, or as a well, I don't. This, this, no, well, the statistics of black life in this country are not. They don't. They do not, in my view, indicate much progress at all. There's been some in selected areas, but overall, for the general population, no. Yeah, and I so, guess my point was, you know, being around people of color and families of color and mm -hmm. people you were working with, I can't imagine that there's too much of a difference in. The way that mother worries for her child, oh, as no. we oh, no, white no, people just, worry for our children, yeah. except we have less to worry about in some ways. You yes. know, we have yes. that one thing. I know when my son gets in a car, if he gets pulled over, I'm not, I'm not, of course, I'm not panicked that he's going to be killed at the hands of you know a corrupt cop. You know, and I think it's cop. gotten worse. Obviously, I I think that the. You know, at least I hope I don't have to worry well, about that. Well, I hope that. you don't, and I, I wish nobody don't. had to worry about that, especially well, they with our do public all the servants. Time. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I have uh, one of my one of my good friends right now, black. He said he's forty four years old, and he said he was living in Phoenix, and he was um, he said every day I leave the house, I'm afraid I'm, I don't know whether I'm coming back or not. And he's forty four years old. Mm. To live a life like that. Huh? To live a life like that, and he's a, a very savvy, politically active man. Incredible. So he knows that he's not making up. He's not making up stuff. I just don't get how the wheels are turning backwards. It's a horrifying thing. And so well, they're being there. Uh, I think that people have been given a lot of permission by the by a preceding political administration to do that. You know, we never even saw people like this in our society before. And in the last ten years, popping up on the Alex Jones, all these people. I mean, yeah, and there were the I Proud like Boys and all this. In your lifetime, you'd seen protests for the rights of individuals. Did you ever see anything like the insurrection on January 6th? No. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. You never saw a run on the Capitol building or no. an attack mm -hmm. of the political structure of this no. country? No. I've had seen, you know, numerous demonstrations. They were, for the most part, very peaceful, especially from the African-American side. Right. Dr. King preached, you know, uh, he did not preach violence. Right. And what do you think, though, then, when people kind of say, well, there was the Black Lives Matter protests and, and riots? I personally think Black Lives Matter was a, was a wonderful thing to happen. It opened a lot of people's lives. A lot of my friends would come up and say to me, I can't believe that this is true. I can't believe maternal death rates, you know, you know, birth, childbirth rates. I can't believe all the financial, you know, stuff. That, I mean, because they just, they just, it's just everything came out. Right. How so the statistics. The statistics about getting the difference between a black family getting a mortgage and a white family getting a mortgage and all that stuff. And then past stuff and then present stuff, too. Uh, uh, there's, um, uh, that's, that's the issue. That's the issue, and that's the core issue of of our country's, you know, lack of um, lack of commitment to to racial justice. And you know, a little bit ago, I was at the World War II Museum in New Orleans, which mm -hmm. is kind of a fascinating, yeah. isn't it? Though? Incredible yes. museum. I think every American out there should go Absolutely. spend a day at that museum and really get in touch with the history of of what that was all about. But I did see there that, you know, we had many people of color in the military fighting in the Second World War, but when they came back, they were still treated as second class. Mm -hmm. And they went out there and they risked their lives mm -hmm. and they were altruistic in their missions. Mm -hmm. And to come back and still be put 
in the back seat. It's just, I just don't understand humanity at times, you know. It is unconscionable. But you do feel somewhat progress from your days as a young girl in the South, or do you feel we had well, progress? Well, yes, I, there's definite progress. Uh, you don't, I mean, for sure from that point. Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, but I see, uh, I see a concerted attempt to erode that progress, and that's what concerns me. But I have never, as an activist, I have never believed that progress or meeting a goal is a permanent. It's never permanent. You always have to go back and defend it because there's someone or some interest that will continue to attack. Uh, and especially if the issue is controversial, like race is in this country. And who was your role model, like the biggest role model when you were growing up in shaping this person that you are today? Well, I've thought about that sometimes. Um, my mentors or the people that I learned from were the people that I worked with and I was around primarily. I didn't have some one person who took me aside and said, I will, I will show you the way. I so did it was not a collective. Yeah, it was a collective. So if there were something you could change today in what's going on in America, what would it be if you had one issue to fix? I think our political leadership is in serious trouble. I'm, I'm certainly, you know, pro-Biden, and, and I think he's doing a good job. But I worry because he's, he's older. He's, he's my age. We need, we need leadership development in younger people to move up uh, because for all, their, all the benefits of being a, an established and experienced and effective leader, um, you know, age can erode that. And I do believe it's time to pass it's the baton it just, they to need another to, yeah. younger. And, and Feinstein group. and Pelosi and all that, they, you know, they need to. Hey, they did great. They, did, time, they did wonderfully. Time for the and, sun to set they, on yeah. that. So I, I worry about the quality of leadership. And then I also worry about the um, the the pressure from, from um, the extreme right on influencing the behavior of the majority because they're they because because they are a minority and uh, but yet the they're they're turning they're turning uh, government into uh, a cultural battle which is to me I just like for them to govern right you know I would like to ask some of these these How about a separation? right. How you about know, a separation of church and well, state? Well, that would be good, too. Yeah. But I would like for them to go to Washington and govern and not try to destroy the opposing party. And I think that we've lost that. We've lost that, that spirit of, of consensus building and uh, even, even congeniality. I don't know. They don't, none of them have manners worth a damn. I feel you. Our leadership today, I... I I think Joe's doing the best he can. I wish he were younger. I um, do, too. I like that he has decorum and he remembers what manners are. And, and I also like the fact that his, his enemies stand over on the side and they storm and they rage and they stamp their feet and they say outrageous, libelous, slanderous lies and all this kind of stuff. And he just goes on and just keeps governing, which is what the hell we, you know, you know we elected him to do. I didn't elect him to go up there and fight political battles. Well, and he's letting he's letting some other people do that, obviously, but he's governing, and he get, and people that's the impression that he's giving that he's giving, and it's also the reality. Well, it's also at the end of the day, no matter who we vote for or who wins, our tax dollars are paying them, mm -hmm. and yes. I expect my tax dollars to go to good use. Mm -hmm. Me too. So rather than bickering and going back and forth and round and round in this false narrative on whatever side, um, I'd like to see shit get done. Mm -hmm. So that's and I would that's like to I see. Stand. I would like to see some more consensus building, because the other issue that I've been involved with extensively in my life is reproductive rights of women and uh, and this this stuff with um, abortion rights is is uh, is just so alarming just so alarming because it shows such disregard and disrespect for the female experience, which in their minds 
is largely reproductive, of course. So but we have no rights over no, our own body. No, no, of course not. If I ever have to say anything publicly about this issue, I will say if a woman cannot control her reproduction, she cannot control her life. Period. Yeah. What's next? I can't wear red nail polish? Yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> if you can't control, if you have or you do not have children, it's just, it's a choice, gentlemen, or it used to be. Wouldn't that be a direct re relationship from the person who chooses what they wish to do with their well, body yes, and course. their higher power, not exactly. the other guy's relationship yeah. with his higher power? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a live and let live person. I've said that on the show a number of times. And um, as long as you're not harming others, it's really no. your body, your right. Absolutely. And so. I think it's very alarming that they're moving down into, they're not satisfied with the Dobbs decision. They want to start messing around with contraception, the abortion pill, and then contraception. Mm. <laughs> I, I, find that, I find that just almost, I mean, from my point of view, I find it laughable, but it's not laughable because they're getting what they want. Well, so <laughs> how do you, anyway, how do you, what's the next step? Well, the next step for me is uh, speaking truth. It's, as soon as we reach our goal, we will close it down and we will create a exhibition level uh, gift to give to a an organization and they can use the information for whatever they want. Uh, but And after that, I will most likely continue my own quest for, for making amends. And I'm not sure exactly what direction that will go in at the moment. Uh, but because I'm trying to really stay focused on speaking truth until we get it, I want it to end, I want it to end on a high note. I think the obvious next step would be to go and try to find some of those, the, the descendants. And, well, uh, I'm just excited that at 82, you still have a lot of aspirations and goals. Oh, for, yeah. Hell yeah. For humanity. And, and with your time, you could be kicking back now and just cruising through no, life, right? No, as a matter of fact, that's the other, one of the other things that I'm in, uh, involved in is uh, a, what I call an end of life exercise. And because I am, 81. And Sorry about that. That's okay. 81, that's all right. 82. At, at this age, it doesn't matter. Hey, anyone, you know you what? Know? You make a good uh, <laughs> representative for the fact that our prez is uh, in his 80s. That's right. You are sharp as a tack and don't well, miss a look beat. Well, look at Gloria. Look at Gloria Steinem. She's 89 years old, and, she, and to celebrate her birthday, she took a big jaunt off to Gambia wow. with some of her friends. What the hell? I mean, Fantastic. you know, Jane Fonda, you know, I mean, but this end of life process I'm doing with my therapist and uh, is to sort of evaluate what I've done before and how much do I want to carry that forward. If I say if I have 10 years left to live, which would be reasonable, uh, do I want to carry forward what am I doing or do I want to go really, really deep inside myself and find something else? that is important for me to do or to be because i think one of the main questions at at a certain point in your life is do you want to do or do you want to be you know or a combination of the two but separating those two i think is important in terms of character and personality development uh because they're not the same and uh because who you are you, what you do may not reflect at all what you are and so i mean and i think I've probably been pretty true to that most of my life, but I've, I want to make sure that I continue to do it. So, so I've been, you know, in my therapist's office doing some hard work and sobbing into the tissue about some hard truths about my personality and what I've done in my life. And what drove you to therapy? When did you start searching yourself mm. and working with a therapist? Oh, oh, I've always been in therapy. And why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> what made you feel? Because I like a third compelled. opinion. I okay. like a third opinion, a third intelligent, uh, thoughtful opinion that's derived from me and my experiences. I mean, how often do you get that kind of experience, even with your best friends? And also, is that if, if it's a good therapist, they don't, you know, they don't let you get off the hook. They really, they really push you, you know, and I like to be pushed. Um, and I don't like expectations of 
so much looming over my head, but I don't mind. In fact, I welcome being pushed and encouraged and to see the truth. I guess my goal of that whole thing is to, of therapy that I've been in, is to see the truth. And no matter what situation I took in there to them, you know, marital problems or professional problems or whatever, what I was really seeking is the truth because I don't think you can come up with a plan to move forward until you know the truth. And the truth is very interesting to me because at 81, it's different than it was when I was even 51. How so? I have more invested in it now. I can see more clearly now how truth is a foundation, at least for me. And not that I haven't lived truthfully in my life, but I just, I don't think that was my goal, you know. Um, because when you're young and you're on a, you know, you're, you're forming yourself and you're finding your way, um, you, I think you define truth a little bit more relatively than you do when you're when you're my age so you're an optimist about Absolutely. the future well you know it's so interesting because in arizona uh carrie lake you know was she's an election denier and she says outrageous things and she got defeated in arizona and i would not i was i was surprised a little bit i didn't want her to win but they rejected her because she was too extreme and that's the state of arizona right which, which is, is generally a very, which is very, red. very red state. Where we see we're sort of turning purple, and that's encouraging. And see, that is encouraging to me because you take a state like Arizona that used to be so red, you know, Republican ballast, and then they're turning extreme, and then uh, the extremity running out, running its time out, and Carrie Lake was just too extreme. Right. And that encourages me. Well, but yeah. see, that's I mean, a we, slow process. Yes. Yeah, and I don't know how you, you know, running viable, strong uh, candidates on the other side is vital. What I worry about is fatigue, you know, battle fatigue setting in. Because sometimes I hear people say, I'm turning off the news. I don't want to listen to any more of this bullshit. I've had it. It makes me depressed. That's over. I'm just not going to listen or I'm going to read it once a day or whatever. But so, and those are people that we need. We don't, you know, we don't we need want to stay engaged. Mm. We need to stay engaged. And I think anything that we can do, I think that would be something that I would really get behind. Anything that would encourage people to stay engaged with the process, right. and especially at the political level, is vital. And very much so at the local level, because what's happening now is some very very disastrous and momentous decisions are being made at the local level, like a local library board. These are not things that are coming down from the federal government. It's, right it's direct here. impact to your it's community. Direct. So, yeah. yeah, but that's where it's starting now. And so you see school boards being taken over, the library being fired because you wouldn't, you know, burn a book or ban a book or whatever. And so, uh, so staying engaged, especially at the political level, is really important. Right. It's and kind of like right when it gets hard, <laughs> right when it gets really hard and you want to give up, that's when you don't. That's when you don't. And it's really hard. Or just take a break for a while. And you don't have to be engaged at the level where you have to join an organization and go out and do grand things. You know, uh, uh, that's, you know that may be the, the provenance of the, of the, uh, of the uh, young now. And uh, I know I've quit doing a lot of things like that. I've just decided I'm just going to make donations instead of being actively involved because this is, they're the ones that are going to be handing the future, handing the future, handling the future and developing it. But I do think that staying engaged is really, really important. Yeah, I agree with you. And I thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. <laughs> and I'm pleasure. glad that you're optimistic because I know you've, you've, seen, you've seen the ups and the downs for many years. Well, I think that life. the the possibilities lie in in uh, being positive and having a. I don't know. I don't see possibilities that appeal to me in taking a negative approach or right. a defeatist approach or a fatalistic approach. Right. Any of those. And let's just get some leaders out there on both sides who have their feet on the ground and the best interest of the American people <laughs> first. And maybe we can all come together and we can have those conversations across the aisle mm -hmm. when there's reasonable people 
and reasonable discussion. Yes. So I look forward to seeing you again. <laughs> Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Thank and you for thanks, the opportunity. <laughs> Thank you for being here. I appreciate you. This episode of Deborah Craddock was hosted by me, Deborah Drucker. It was edited by Juan Sanson and produced by Lee Rocker and Chloe Cassins. Thank you to our engineers, Adam Burt and Hunter McKellar, for making me sound good. Our amazing music was performed by Amy Nelson and Kathy Guthrie of Folk You. Be sure to rate and review this episode wherever you listen to podcasts. For more Deborah Craddock, check out DebraCraddock.com and our Instagram at Deborah Craddock. That's D-E-B-O-R-A-H Craddock. Like Democratic. Until next time. Political is personal, so